Sam, I want to ask you a question. Yes. What do you think of the Broccoli's getting rid of the one Bond which confirmed the fact that Bond can break the fourth wall at any time, he just chooses not to? This never happened to that other fellow. to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Tessa Suela, and with me is the lawful good character on this podcast, Dr. Sam Morris. Hello! Andy is off again this week, so joining us in the third chair is friend of the podcast, person of many podcasts, James. Hello. You can't see it, but I have a pipe in my mouth. (laughs) as our third chair in this episode i find out what this last year has been like for our soap opera first responders james becomes food in bug snacks and sam stars in one james bond movie say tessa i asked having no idea what the answer is what is station 19 I love that all of our questions have become very meta, like, because we have our notes and we've just started, it's it started becoming part of the bit, and I'm not entirely sure when that happened, but I am enjoying it immensely. Station 19, very simply, is an ABC television drama that is a spinoff of the very famous medical drama Grey's Anatomy. It was developed for ABC by Shonda Rhimes and Stacey McKee, and it premiered on March 22nd, 2018. It is the second spinoff of Grey's Anatomy after Private Practice. It is also set in Seattle and it focuses on the lives of the men and women and NB people at Seattle Fire Station 19. The show stars Jaina Lee Ortiz, Danielle Savra, Jason Winston George, who's from the original Grey's Anatomy run as Ben, Jay Hayden, Barrett Doss, Gray Damon, Okarietti Anadawan, and Stefania Spampanato. So yeah, that is very, very briefly what Station 19 is. And that was my monkey for this week, was the fourth season. All right, moving on. No, wait, hold on. James, what do you know about Grey's Anatomy, Station 19, any of these, you know, Shonda Rhimes, any of that nature of show? I've seen, I've seen exactly one episode of Grey's Anatomy, and it's the episode where Patrick Dempsey's character dies. Wow. Wow. That's a that's an episode. Yeah. And I was like I had watched it fairly recently after um watching Transformers Dark of the Moon where he's the human villain and I was like okay now I can root for him and like you know he's hot but like he's not evil in this and then he dies. So they really hit me with the one two punch there. <laughs> <laughs> This what is, to say to that. This is well, I do, because fortunately that leads me right into my next question. So James has seen one mid-run episode of Grey's Anatomy, which brings up a good question. Tessa, what's it like starting a show during the middle of its run? So I am a longtime Grey's Anatomy fan. We've talked about Grey's Anatomy on the show before. I did an episode on Grey's Anatomy for the Pop Culturist with Sam and Martha, our our other friend of the podcast from Martha and Colby Grow Up. I love Grey's Anatomy. Grey's Anatomy has been with me in sickness and health. There are 17 seasons of it. I have rewatched many of those seasons. It is like the most uh, chicken noodle soup show out there. 
I love it so much. When I started watching Station 19, because I, I did want to give this a chance, there are some characters that come over from Grey's Anatomy, most notably Ben, who is the anesthesiologist who is married to Bailey from Grey's Anatomy, and Bailey herself guest stars. She guest appears on many of these episodes. And so I was interested. Uh, they did a really good job of introducing this show, I believe, uh, in Grey's Anatomy by having Jaina Lee Ortiz, who is technically the lead of the show, although we're going to get into how they've backed away from that a little bit here in a few minutes. They had her come in on an episode and have like a whole arc with Meredith during one of the episodes. She like, she... She sticks her hand inside a patient because she's a first responder and she like to like stop some bleeding. And so she has to go into the operating room and she has this whole conversation with Meredith. And that's how they introduce that character. So all of this was very intriguing to me. So I tried to watch the first season. It's not good. It is not great television. And here's why. It was trying way, way too hard to be Grey's Anatomy. Like even to the point where they had Gina Lee Ortiz's character, Andy, like doing the monologues that Meredith does, the voiceovers, because every Grey's Anatomy episode starts with Meredith voiceover and it ends with Meredith voiceover. So they were trying to do that as far as structure. They were trying to have it be her, you know, being, you know, in the life of this first responder, being a firefighter and focusing on like her love life. And it was very soapy and it was very like dramatic, but it was trying to follow too hard the beats of a Grey's Anatomy episode, which makes it not a good spinoff. If you look at quality spinoffs, which we have on this show before, and I can think of several off the top of my head, usually the way a good spinoff works is if it can distinguish itself from the show that has been spun off from in a way that's interesting, and yet it still carries the mood or charm of the original show. So for an example, Frasier, which we've talked about before, is a spinoff of Cheers. And I was really worried when I started watching Frasier that it was just going to be like, oh, this character from Cheers went to Seattle and found a new bar, and now it's just Cheers, but in Seattle. But that's not what they do. Um, Frasier is an interesting character in his own right, and so they make a show that's about that character, and the show has a different feeling from it, but it still relies on some of the same humor. Same thing with Angel. When they spun it off from Buffy, they went a, a different genre route with that one. With The Good Fight, they actually grew a character from the show, like put, took a character and put her in a different situation. This is what good spinoffs are made of. And frankly, the first season of this was just not very good. James, I have a question for you. So one of the other things about this show that doesn't work in the beginning, but then works later, is this approach to doing a show about first responders. Station 19 is a show about firefighters and, to a lesser extent, paramedics who also work out of the firehouse. In the first season, they spend way too much time trying to teach us about how to fight fires, whereas later it becomes about storylines that affect first responders. So here's the question. We're not talking about police today, but those other first responders, the, the firefighters, the paramedics. So here, even though we have this moment with the police that's really longer than a moment, we generally look at first responders positively. How are they viewed over there? So, like, I mean, it's kind of the thing where, like, no one really has any problem. It seems across the board with first responders, like firefighters and ambulance drivers and things like that, doctors, they're all great. Like, I mean, you know, by and large, it's kind of their own personal problems. That's really, it's those, it's those first responders. And, like, it, you know, it's if 
they had personal problems, you know, like where they were doing bad things, you'd be like, oh, okay, that's it. But it's not, it's not necessarily like an across the board thing. However, so I don't know how like politically charged I can become on this show. I I think you're okay. Okay. So like, I mean, we, we, you know, we recognize like the, um, ACAB movement and stuff in America, but there's been like, you know, there's been like a large problem with how, um, Angardi Shiakana, which is our police force, has been dealing with stuff, but in recent events, and I don't know when uh, this episode of the podcast will go out, but like at time of recording, the police have become exceedingly heavy handed in um, dispersing crowds and things in Dublin. It's not great. Um, and it's it's waking up a lot of people to the reality that the system is broken and we need not to defund it, but to disband it. Uh, however, that being said, no one has ever written a song called Fuck the Fire Brigade. So. True. Very true. That is true. So Station 19, uh, from my outsider's perspective, uh, you know, it's good to go. Yeah, it's just, it's really interesting, too, because just like Grey's Anatomy, this this show did have some really good things in its DNA, because just like Grey's Anatomy, they did, like, the blind casting, and so it's a very diverse show in terms of uh, both race and sexuality, I believe, as well. And so there are a lot of different, I mean, I don't know how diverse firehouses generally are in the U.S., but if, if they are this diverse, that I think is a good thing. So there's a lot of really good things going on here. There are a lot of really great characters as well. Um, our personal favorite is Victoria Hughes. We love her. She's such a great character on the show. And because both Grey's Anatomy and Station 18 are on ABC, there's a lot of crossover between the two shows. So like I said, Bailey will often show up on Station 19 because she's married to Ben, like Victoria Hughes has been on Grey's Anatomy. Um, they've d- they do usually a big crossover event every year where like one episode will, you know, at, at Grey's Anatomy will start a story and then it'll finish on Station 19 or vice versa. So I stopped watching the first season because it started to feel like homework. I didn't like the show. I thought it was too much like a, a ripoff of Grey's Anatomy, and it just wasn't working for me. But I love Grey's Anatomy, so I kept watching that, and I kept seeing these characters show up on Grey's Anatomy, which was kind of frustrating at first because I was like, I don't want to have to watch the show that I don't like in order to understand what's going on on the show that I do like. So that was irritating, but I still really liked the characters. Like, I still wanted to know what was going on with most of the characters and try to figure out, like, how... I I liked the way they interacted with the Grey's Anatomy people. I liked all of that. Well, it turns out that what we started watching the Grey's Anatomy season this season, the COVID season, which took a very, very close look at COVID in hospitals, um, how the pandemic was being handled in hospitals. Meredith Grey gets COVID. She almost dies. Like there's this whole storyline. And they did a crossover with Station 19 because Station 19 is a spring show. It is a, it, it, it does not premiere in the fall. It always premieres in the spring. And they did a crossover with Station 19 and there, it started with a very interesting storyline about police brutality, um, where these firefighters were trying to help uh, this black woman get her daughter out of a house. Like this, this white man had kidnapped her and was going to like traffic her, and this you know black mother was trying to get her daughter out of the house. And these black firefighters were trying to help her, and they both get arrested by the cops for trying to break into this man's house. And so it's 
to me, we watched that storyline and it was very seamlessly integrated into Grey's Anatomy because they have to go to like the hospital and all of these things. And I just thought this is interesting. This is different than what they were doing before. I want to see where this storyline goes. So I started watching season four of Station 19 and it just grabbed me and pulled me in. And I'll talk about why that is in a minute. But one of the things we discovered after the fact is that they had changed showrunners. So Stacey McKee had started Station 19, um, but she it was taken over by Krista Vernoff. Oh, Krista Vernoff, we could talk about her so much on the show. She is the showrunner that is always relied on by other people to keep their shows going. She can never get her own show. She's been on Grey's Anatomy since the beginning. She's been showrunning it for well over 10 years. Um, and so they finally gave her Station 19. She says that Stacy, in an interview recently, she said that Stacy McGee was overburdened by notes from the studio. And that's why the first couple of seasons are really clunky and awkward. She has taken over though and really made Station 19 into its own show with its own voice. We don't have the awkward voiceover anymore. It's more of an ensemble show than Grey's Anatomy is, I believe, even though Jaina Lee Ortiz is still kind of the main character. She's not really the main character anymore. There's a lot more screen time given to the other characters, and I think these were all very smart decisions to differentiate the show from Grey's Anatomy. What did you think about the shift, Sam? I mean, it was it was clear that something had happened and the show had gotten better. I don't you know, it's funny. I I find it fun to get really into the weeds of this kind of behind the scenes, how television's made. I won't say it was fun exactly, but the recent news about the CBC in Canada with Kim's Convenience and some of the issues behind the scenes that have made the show Kim's Convenience into what it is. I, I don't really know how much of that goes on literally anywhere else. I mean, I could... The, the the number of production companies I know of are really CBC's production company and Kudos that has a lot of shows on BBC and ITV. That's it. So I don't really know how much drama there is anywhere else, but like it's very fascinating to me how the drama of behind-the-scenes production affects the product you get on your television. Especially with Krista Vernoff. I mean... She's been doing Grace for however many years she did. She's been doing Station 19. And as soon as they give her her own show on ABC, they cancel it after five episodes. Like she is running the like highest grossing show on television right now. And Station 19. And Station 19. And they still can't give her her own show, which I just think is ridiculous. Like Shonda's going to steal her away back to Netflix, I think. That should be interesting. Ha- have you seen Bridgerton, James? Uh, No. I confess I haven't, but I don't know whether that's for good or worse because I've heard mixed things, but also like I don't know. Do you like do you like like a soapy, like gossip girl drama for drama's sake type of thing? You'll like this one. It's Shonda Rhimes doing a period piece and she you don't get soapier than that. You don't. I I, I feel like I'm gonna let you down when I say I don't know who Shonda Rhimes is. Oh, Shonda Rhimes is the highest paid black woman in television. I think she's actually the highest paid woman in television now. But she is responsible for such shows as Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, Bridgerton. She's very, she's like the queen of network television, except for she's not doing network television anymore. So let me ask you this then. Do you know who Ryan Murphy is? Yes, unfortunately. So... 
those are your two. And the interesting thing is they were both lured away from uh, traditional broadcast networks here to go to Netflix. And one of them has squandered that opportunity by making subpar material. And the other one is Shonda Rhimes. <laughs> I'm going to have to look into this more. It's just like I've never seen any of those shows you listed off by, you know, one episode of Grey's Anatomy, as I've said. So it's more like I've never encountered her than like willful ignorance. So it seems I'm going to have to remedy that. Yeah, she's such a big like pop culture TV icon. How to Get Away with Murder. That's the other really big show that she did with Viola Davis. Um, again, it's very soapy, very dramatic. That's kind of her, she, she wants, she wants to show you the tea. That's what she wants to do. And she's very, very good at it. As an Irish person, I can appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but like, there are just a couple more things about Station 19 before we move on. I, I really appreciate all of the characters on this show, but they did this season, they did that police brutality storyline, which was not just a one-off episode. They actually continued to talk about that throughout the season. I really appreciated the way that both Grey's Anatomy and Station 19 talked about COVID because a lot of shows, I think, did the thing where they were like, okay, we're just going to push right past this and pretend that either the pandemic never happened or we're going to jump ahead in the future and not talk about the pandemic at all. Which is fine. Like, I don't want everything I do to be about the pandemic either or any all of the pop culture I do. But I really appreciated the intelligent and frankly kind of cathartic way that both Grey's Anatomy and Station 19 talked about it. Like, everybody on Station 19 was wearing masks. Um, they, you know, they were all doing COVID-related things where they were doing, like, there was an episode where they did a rapid test station. There were episodes where they talked about how hard it is to fight fires, you know, when there's a ton of people sneaking around, you know, trying to trying to be in groups together. Um, there's a lot of queer storylines this season. At least two of the characters are gay. Actually, three of the characters, because there's a, a bi couple. They're both bi, and they get married um, during this season. I, I cried very much during the wedding episode. I'm just going to let everybody know now I cry at gay weddings. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just a thing. Uh, so, yeah, it was it was so good. And, like, they, they talked about the George Floyd murder. Like, that happens in the middle of the show because it's still set last spring. I should have mentioned that. The show is set during last spring, even though it aired, you know, it started airing in January. And so it was really interesting looking back at something that I remember, you know, that happened in the very near past, but looking at it through this lens of, you know, it's a bunch of black first responders trying to figure out how they, how do we work with the police when we know that all of these things have happened? How do we, you know, change these things systemically? Like, can we even change them systemically? And it was a very good season. The person, the personal stuff was also very good, but the the broader themes I think just like elevated it this season way past what it had been before. So I guess my answer to your question is like starting a show in the middle can be good. So then, are you going to go back and watch the earlier episodes? No, I don't think I need to. I I really don't. I feel like I there were some things this season that I was like, okay, I don't know what that is because they were referring to something that happened earlier. But for the most part, I didn't really feel like I needed a lot of backstory, which might be a plus for network television is that for a lot of network TV shows, you can kind of jump in the middle, like unlike a lot of streaming shows. But I don't plan on going back. I think this is good television. I think if I went back, I'd be disappointed. (laughs) Okay, James. I have a question for you. So, 
we are trying on Monkey Off My Backlog to incorporate more international things onto our pop culture list because I think that for a lot of people in the U.S., we have, well, I mean, I don't think I know this is true. We have a lot of blinders on when it comes to international pop culture, except for maybe Korean pop groups that seems to have really broken to like crossed over for some reason into the U.S. So we've been we've been trying to incorporate like more music and more film into our lists. And before we started recording this episode, uh, we talked a little bit about the fact that so many Americans have so many stereotypes about Irish pop culture, you know, like I think flogging molly as a band came up like that's like a big thing in the u.s when it comes to like irish pop culture do you want to say your joke about you two here no i'm saving it for later okay saving a joke for you about you two later i and you know there's a lot of americans who take a lot of pride in their irish heritage but if you dig any deeper on that irish heritage you realize that it's all based on a lot of stereotypes um and a lot of like misunderstandings about what Ireland is, and they're not really Irish at all. They're just Americans trying on a different culture. So my question for you is, is that if you were to give a short list of things that Americans actually should consume, should read, should watch, should listen to, that you think is a more indicative of, you know, Irish culture than, say, Flogging Molly or you 2 what would some of the things that would be on that list be for you? Uh, okay, so is, th- is this the point where I'm free to pop off about the Irish diaspora? Go right We're ahead. We're ready. We're ready. Okay, so uh, I don't know how I, I don't know how much you or like the listeners know about Irish history because by and large it's not taught an awful lot abroad. Like maybe the 1960 and rising, but like you know, in the previous century before that, we had a giant famine where all of the potato crops uh, caught blight, and so well, it's a famine, but it was largely kind of genocide because the English people. And colonial occupation, you know, they didn't give us food. And so we had, you know, like we had a fairly large population and millions emigrated or died. We're one of the few countries in the world that had such a drastic decrease in population that we still haven't recovered from in terms of population numbers. So a lot of people did go abroad. And so we have this really wide, like diaspora, like especially in places like America and Australia. But I think like a lot of the misconceptions are based around sort of the stereotype that seems to be founded from Darby O'Gill and the Little People, films like that, or <laughs> The Quiet Man, and you know like the infamous uh, Lucky Charms. And like I realize that people, some people in Ireland do talk like that, and I've certainly played up that aspect of my Irish accent when I was I was doing some voice acting for a vampire, which is explicitly written as like exceptionally irish so i was talking like you know like ah sure jesus like that but not and but there's far more like diverse accents in ireland and i don't want to i don't want to like critique people too much because at, at this stage it's like nearly ingrained that this is what ireland is perceived as in global media and there was the whole debacle of wild mountain time which is based off of a play which is set quite near to where I live. They sound nothing like anyone who lives there. And also, despite the fact that the film is set post-Freedom Tower being built in New York, none of the Irish characters look like they've ever seen running water. So... Okay. 
they're all they've all got dirt on their faces like they're living in like 1800s peasant time <laughs> they got they got Jamie Dornan in who has an Irish accent and they made him do a different worse Irish accent <laughs> this movie sounds horrible yeah oh no it's so bad but it's also so it's meant to be like it's meant to be this romancy movie where it's like Emily Blunt is trying to get with Jamie Dornan's character and the twist of the film I'll spoil it for you now because uh so my friend Hannah uh looked this up because we had a wild tangent about it when we were recording an episode of Archive Admirers he feels he can't be with her because he thinks he's a bee like a bumblebee yes that's in the original one and they put that in the film like okay like he thinks what (laughs) he thinks he's a bee and so for that reason, he thinks he cannot be with human Emily Blunt. Whereas, as we know from the DreamWorks hit animated film, B-movie, humans and bees can have meaningful and loving relationships. That's right. What's up with that? <laughs> bees can be at the... Come on. What's happening? Who are these people? That was my best Seinfeld. I'm sorry. It's not good. <laughs> I can do better Mulaney. I'm sorry. A bee? Is this absurdist theater? Like, what? No. Is this supposed to be like a Waiting for Godot type of twist? (laughs) No. You see, because, like, Waiting for Godot is good. And it's Samuel Beckett is fantastic. (laughs) Samuel Beckett has uh, wrote a play called Play. And at the end of it, it has the stage direction, Repeat Play. So it's like a never-ending loop of this play. Whereas Wild Mountain Time... And the um, play it's based off of, which I can't remember the name of for the life of me, it's not Wild Mountain Time, is created uh, and distributed in total earnestness with no degree uh, or like self-awareness, no degree of irony whatsoever. So seeing all of this, it really makes you just, oh, it makes you so mad. And I don't think any other culture in the world has this kind of problem because like, obviously there were, you know, racially insensitive depictions of people of color and uh, Asian minorities. Obvi- like, I'm not erasing those, but, you know, like, they've gotten better in how they, pre- and like, blind casting makes a more racially diverse, ethnically diverse cast in Hollywood, which prevents that. However, Irish people, it's founded on this myth of it being a land of leprechauns and that kind of thing. And it's not something we can really do because it's not really a racial stereotype so when i look at it it really pisses me off but i recognize there's nothing we can really do because rte who is our national broadcaster will not fund irish creators to make their own uh things on the network so they have to go elsewhere so which is why when i eventually get around to actually answering the question a lot of these things which are create <laughs> which are good irish media are created by irish people but they're distributed and funded by things like the BBC, which is a British corporation. See, I find all that fascinating. Like, Sam really likes the drama of television. I find, like, production fast. Like, like who produces what? Like, which creators get to be on which networks or which channels or which streaming services? I find all that really interesting. Yeah. So, if I were to... um If I were to make a list of things you should consume across... Uh, multiple media. Uh, let's see. So I'm not a fan of the book or the show, but I recognize normal people, especially the show, 
is exceptionally well crafted. So I'd recommend that. Dairy Girls, which is... Uh, so I th- a lot of these as well deal with the... F- there's a lot of shame and secrecy that Ireland has to deal with in its national past, especially like what the Catholic Church has done. Uh, and like a lot of these will deal with that. But Dairy Girls specifically, you know, like it's a comedy, but it's set during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. And it's like, it gets very serious about topics like the hunger strikes and things like that, but it's framed within a comedy. So it makes it easier to understand because it is, you know, make no mistake, it is uh, a very complex issue. It's, you know, it's fairly easy to understand on the surface, but there's a lot of um, history that goes into it. Other things, you know, that deal with what Ireland has done in the past, which I'd recommend. uh, Dara Martin's Future Popes of Ireland. Moira Fowley Doyle's All the Bad Apples. These are both books. Um, let's see. In terms of in terms of films, I don't really think there's any good like films which are being made by Irish creators. That like I mean there was this that film Pixie, which came out which was set in like Sligo, and I it looked fun from the trailer and it had Alec Baldwin in it, but I'm not sure. Another TV show which is a comedy I'd recommend is called Frank of Ireland, which has all of the Gleasons in it. Donal and Brendan. Uh, I watched one episode of it on the TV while I was waiting for Taskmaster to come on, and it was great. But a lot of the good things that Ireland is putting out in terms of media seems to be music. And I happen to know, I have the privilege to know a lot of these people. So, who are make, so like, you know, you have big acts like Hozier and Niall Horan and whatever, who is from the same town uh, as I am. Well, roughly. But there's also, you know, like little indie artists, um, Lost in Static and his band Speakers, uh, Eve Eve Bell, Rebecca Locke. These are all like, they're all fantastic. They're all on Spotify as well. So, you know, like they can, you know, they can be heard. It's not limited by geography because the internet is a thing now. So like, I, you know, these are all wonderful people, but I feel like they're a more accurate representation of how our like Eve Bell has a song about the housing crisis in Dublin and how it's increasingly more and more difficult to actually get a house as a young person and not have to rent it from vulture funds. And that's, you know, that's an exceptionally earnest representation of what it's actually like to live in Ireland instead of the quiet man or uh, <laughs> anything else. I feel like I, I feel like I popped off for too long. No, you you're, this is all great. You've given me a lot to put on my own list. I will say that my father did make me watch The Quiet Man every St. Patrick's Day until I was 18. So I, my father is definitely not... My my father is definitely one of those people, but I can't tell if it was because of the Irish content or the John Wayne content. That might be a good question to ask him. Uh, I'll say too, and no matter how I say her name, I'm pretty sure it's going to be wrong. But I guess for the over a decade or so, I've been listening to uh, Rasheen Murphy. Roshin. Roshin. See, I was closer. See, that's what I thought. And then I got it wrong. I like her a lot. But so I don't just listen to you two. Phew. <laughs> yeah. I, the joke was, the joke from earlier that I didn't want to tell at the time was like, I've read Castle Rack Rent and I listen to you too. What else do I need? Castle Rack Rent. Uh, You're gonna make James rage quit this episode. I know, I know. You better move on to bug snacks. Okay. Distract, distract okay. them. Okay. Distract I've them. never, okay. I've never rage quit. Um, 
recording a <laughs> podcast episode, but I've also never had a podcast episode begin with an apology beforehand to me for that they were going to talk about you too. So we're really covering all of our bases here. Uh, can I can I recommend a podcast to you? It's called You Talking You Too to Me. Is that a real thing? It's a real podcast. It's actually it's Adam Scott from Parks and Rec with Scott Ackerman. It's actually, you know, if you don't hate you too, it'd be a fun time. But anyway, what is Buck Snacks? <laughs> a completely normal segue after that. Uh, what is Buck Snacks? Wonderful transition. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna answer. I'm gonna answer that with a question of my own, which is, what isn't bug snacks? Mm, that is. That is. That is. Uh, so, how is bug snacks? Why is bug snacks? <laughs> I was gonna say that. Why is who bug is snacks? bug snacks? Who is bug snacks? No. So, okay. So, bug snacks. I so like they debuted the trailer for this game around like the PS5 showcase. You know, it seemed like, you know, just a fun, like, wacky indie game where it's like, oh, haha, you know, you play as these, like, cute little bear-looking things, and you feed them food, and parts of their body become that food. And it's like, okay, this is, you know, bizarre, but okay. And I was like, I, I sort of jokingly was like, I want this, I need this, this is going to be the best game of the console generation. And then PlayStation, uh, as part of its PlayStation Plus lineup, they start they started bringing out like a free PlayStation five game as well as the two PlayStation four games. And so book snacks was one of them. So I was like, hell yes, I don't have to pay like 15 euro for this. Uh, so I got it. And then we had to go through the whole rigmarole of actually securing a PlayStation five then, which we managed. Uh, and so then the first thing, I'm sorry, Sam, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. I don't think, I don't think we had encountered one another what like when they initially went up or i don't know whether you saw this but i had one in my basket at the time like when they first went up for pre-order in november through this um toy company called smiths they also sell like video games and whatever but there was that many people on the site it kept lagging and having to reload and i had one in my basket fairly early on like i kept getting timed out and delayed and whatever it circled again i was like okay it's fine i'm just putting in my card details i, ha I just have to hit enter and it refreshed, and it had a picture of a red minion. And it said, oops! That's terrifying! Yes, terrifying! And I was, um, several months later, eventually, we, we just happened to snag one. Much to your chagrin on Twitter, it seems. Yeah, well, you know, it's really interesting, because as you mentioned uh, the the PS Plus thing uh, to get to Bug Snacks, it got me thinking... I guess maybe we should just go ahead and start subscribing to that, you know, and just collecting the games every month until we get the system, which I don't know. Would you would you endorse that plan? I'd endorse it in the sense that, like, I don't get all the games all the time because some of them are like, I don't like this game. It's a sports game. I have no interest in bladder chasing activities uh, in real life or in virtual life. I, I got it. I got it. I got the joke. Okay, I didn't. Could we explain what <laughs> ladder chasing means? That was means? so good. I like it. I like it. That's much. Okay. First of all, the American equivalent of that is I don't like watching sports ball, which is such a reductive, like, it makes me so angry as a sports person. 
but I like yours because it's smart. Yeah. Oh, is it because of the ball? Like the ball used to be made out of. Yeah, a pig's bladder. Yeah, it used to be made from a pig's bladder. Yeah. Hence, hence a pigskin ball in American football. I've gotten some. I've gotten some really good games, and like a lot of times they'll give. Um, should I give you time to recover from that? Because I could see Sam still laughing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm okay. Okay. Uh, so sometimes they give, like, you know, indie games and whatever alongside, like, you know, they'll do, like, a Call of Duty game, and then they'll give you, like, The Witness. That was March uh, 2020, I think, was their lineup. Uh, and there was one of the games, it was a PS5 game, it was the month after Bugsnax or whatever, Maquette, which I was like, oh, this is a fun game where, you you know, it plays on, oh, you got to use, like, scale models of things, and it, it, you know, fucks with the perception of... Uh, like size, you know, you put things into a model and they'll come up bigger or smaller in the real world. But it's also a surprisingly emotionally engaging game. Bryce Dallas Howard is in it. She does uh, one of the two voices you hear. And that's sort of the experience then that I had to bring it back. That's the experience that I've had with Bug Snacks, where I was like, oh, this is a fun game. I'll. And then it was like, it, it changed me. Bug Snacks as a piece of media physically change something inside of me and so the basic plot remains the same as what they present so it's developed by this studio called young horses who i haven't heard of before and haven't really looked into uh, aside from following them on twitter um but i haven't like seen any games of theirs if they've made them before so really they seem to have come with this like a bolt out of the blue and it's billed as like one of the flagship starting games of the playstation 5 like it's built you know it's beside spider-man miles morales the remake of demon souls Deathloop, which i know came out slightly later but they kind of announced these all in one go like the sequel to um horizon zero dawn which i'm still mad is not called horizon one dawn it's sad when they miss the obvious yeah the basic premise like remains the same you play as this reporter who's never named uh, and you go to this island called Snacktooth Island in search of, you all have, it's all whimsical names. You're going after someone called Elizabeth Megafig, who is looking into bug snacks. The person who sends you is called Clumby, who is sort of like a hard-boiled journalist. And so you go there and you have to like de- uh, encounter all the secrets of the bug snacks and this kind of thing. And the race of characters you play as, is they're Grumbuses, which I think is funny. Um, you know, but it's like, and they sort of broadly fall into character trope stereotype things at the start when you meet them with their whimsical names. You know, Befica is kind of like an online like teen. You know, she says like things like totes and bestie, and this and like she's a snoop. And then you have uh Chandlo, who's voiced by Yuri Lowenthal of Spider Man PlayStation Four fame, and he's like a gym bro. And then you have, like, Wambus, who's a, like, salt-of-the-earth type farmer. And, they, you know, there's, there's all these ones, like... And it quickly becomes... And I'm trying not to spoil this as much as possible. Because I feel like both you and everyone who listens to this needs to experience bug snacks in as uh, uninformed way as possible. <laughs> but quickly, like, bug snacks sets itself out as, like, this is a commentary... And it's a commentary on genetic modifications and stem cell culture, things like that, because the Booksnacks physically change 
how our Grumbus looks. So, like, Wambus is, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, we grow bug snacks. They're food. We eat them. It's great. You know, whatever. And he's diametrically opposed by someone who views them as intelligent animals. And um, bug snacks, they look like bugs. They or they look like food. They go around. They say their names in, you know, like the Pokemon type fashion. They just say their names. So you have, like, this thing which looks like a burger, which is called a bunger. And as I uh, as I was catching them, I was mimicking their voices. So the bunger goes around and it goes like, bunger, 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 bunger. <laughs> it's so, like, it's so patently ridiculous in the way it's set up that you, like, it nearly blindsides you when things start to go awry and you have to bring back this disparate group of people who really, really hate each other and make them realize that, like, they've got things in common. but. There's like there's a character who protect like is a mystic, and they say like oh the you know like bug snacks are a toxin we shouldn't be eating them like from a religious zealot point of view but is secretly eating bug snacks on the side it's got full on conspiracy theories it's got uh, LGBTQ plus representation some of the characters are are referred to with uh they them pronouns and i don't know whether that's intentional but it made me happy it's such an experience because it's like it's like you've taken some lsd while watching like children's network programming like sesame street that kind of pedigree but it also feels like um the island of dr moreau there's a point like where they're uh threatened by something unseen in the night and i won't tell you what it is but, like, they turn around and the sign above their town, which says Snacksburg, has been scratched through with no more bug snacks. So it's really, like, this is an intense game. And you play through it, and it leaves you, like, in tears at the end. Tessa, I think we were all wrong about Spider-Man. We should be wanting to play bug snacks. Bug snacks is why we should be upset that we don't have a PS5. It sounds like it. Sounds like we're missing out. What's the format of this game? Is it like more of a puzzle game, more of an RPG? Like what's So the gameplay is like um the gameplay is like so you go in and you meet these characters. You have to look like the ultimate goal is finding Elizabeth. But to do that you got to like help all the characters come back to town. And so you talk to them and they'll give you like quests and stuff. And to do that, and most of them revolve around go here and catch this bug snack and feed it to me or do this thing. There's also like mini bosses and stuff, which is fun, but it's a puzzle game. So like it's an RPG in that sense where you've got like characters and they've got quests and they've got dynamic relationships which evolve and like, you know, are impacted by the themes of the story. I d I'll say this now in case I forget, there is a post credit scene to bug snacks, which blows the case wide open. Yeah, think like Sam Jackson showing up at the end of Iron Man 1. It's that level of like post credit scene where you just go, whoa. <laughs> like imagine being a nerd in the theater in 2008. That's how I felt when the post credit scene to Bug Snacks came on the TV. I, I was a nerd in the theater in 2008. So this sounds just perfect to me. Sounds great. Yeah. And so, to, yeah, the puzzle aspect is like, the bug snacks, you got to do different things to like actually catch them. Sometimes they only come out at certain times of day or in certain weathers, or you got to like, 
you know, set traps for them. And some of them you need to bait with like different sauces, which lure them. Some of the, some of the bug snacks are hot foods like, you know, chili peppers and uh, that kind of thing. And some of them are like ice cream and like frozen popsicles. Bug snacks will fly and destroy your traps, things like that. Like it, it really, some of the puzzle solutions are kind of difficult. So it sounds like this is a hard recommend for you. Who would you recommend this to? Everyone needs to experience bug snacks. And also like the age rating is, the age rating is like three or whatever. Like it's a relatively small number on the ESRB um, rating scale. And so it's like, you know, anyone of any age can enjoy it because like, you know, if children play it, if they see like the cute, like it's also got a cutesy like soundtrack. So it really is build kind of like that. And so they can play it and be like, haha, fun, you know, puzzle catching food, you know, animals, which look like food. And then, you know, anyone who's like really into uh, real world issues and, you know, this kind of like, should we be killing animals? Do they have souls? You can be like, oh, okay, this is stuff for me too. This is how the socialists get you. They get you from an early age. <laughs> yeah. I I want to play this game. You have completely sold me on it. Like I said before, book snacks is something you should really go into blind because there are twists. There are narrative twists that you just you just need to experience yourself. So I hope you get a PlayStation 5 at some point soon. I'm not sure whether you can play it on the PlayStation 4. Definitely on the PlayStation 5. All right, let's go to Sam, your segment. So you watched the, I say this like I also did not watch it again. You watched the documentary Becoming Bond, which is on Hulu. What is this movie? Okay, so Becoming Bond is billed as a documentary drama from 2017. It was directed by Josh Greenbaum. In the US, at least, it was distributed by Hulu. And what it is, is it is George Lazenby's story of how he became and then unbecame James Bond. The film is narrated by George Lazenby. At the beginning, he sits down in a chair and he tells you the story from start to finish with some questions uh, lobbed at him throughout by the director. But mostly this is him telling his story. And and that's the end of that sentence. James, have you heard of this? I haven't, which is really odd because the James Bond franchise was like my whole personality on Twitter for a while. <laughs> like if you asked people, you know, one of those things where it's like, let your mutuals um, tell you what you're known for. Uh, it was, I, I did that a while back and it was like Stephen King and watching all of the James Bond films. Yeah. Because I did that, I watched three of them a week and did like a tweet along where it, you know, like, no one really cared, but I was tweeting about them, uh, and it's become, like, there's a card in Cards Against Humanity, the UK version, uh, at least, which is, people keep sending to me sometimes when they'll draw it, and they're like, oh, look, it's you, and it just says the way James Bond treats women, because <laughs> so many of my, so many of my tweets is like, this makes me exceptionally uncomfortable. And I want to, like, watch a spy film. I don't want to have to deal with this. Yeah. Well, we'll pick up on Timothy Dalton-era Bond next month. So we'll have to have some tweet exchanges then. But you and I have talked about George Lazenby. We both like him as as a Bond actor. So it was really great to get to see this story. 
Yeah. So wait, so you said this is, I know it's a documentary, but you said it's basically him narrating it. Is it more of a documentary or a drama? So I think documentary is a very misleading term for whatever this is. So what happens is George Lazenby sits down in a chair in front of a camera, and then we cut to act an actor playing him as a child. Uh, and that goes on for a little bit. Eventually, the, the film, Josh Lawson plays adult George Lazenby. So it's one of those things where George Lazenby says something happened to him, and then we watch it dramatized by an actor. Um, so the main two actors in this movie, Josh Lawson plays George Lazenby. Uh, Cassandra Clementi plays Belinda, his, his first love. And so the film doesn't really document so much as it retells in a memoirish fashion his upbringing in Australia, how he followed Belinda to England, how he became a male model, uh, how he conned his way into being Bond. Uh, and he was also a used car salesman there for a while. So it, it's very interesting to hear him tell his own story and then see it dramatized. So it's like a documentary, biopic, memoir thing. I know I usually don't like it when documentaries do things like this, where they like dramatize like what happened. But I think it worked pretty well, don't you, for for this because he was we could hear his narrative voice throughout the whole thing. How well did this idea work for you? In addition to the two main actors, Jane Seymour plays a role. Jeff Garland, uh, who most people know from Curb Your Enthusiasm, Jake Johnson from New Girl, and Dana Carvey from Dana Carvey, all, all are in the film. And it, there's this really great moment about halfway through the film where the director says, did all of this really happen? And he said, well, if it didn't, I remember it awful well. And so it's kind of like, I guess, I don't know. And so like you're left with this. And, and the more he tells the story, the more you feel like, yeah, all of this did really happen. Like it's it's incredulous to a point And then it adds up and it's like it had to have happened this way. There's no other way this could have all happened because I know the end point about becoming Bond is true. There's no other way any of this makes sense unless it's all true. And so I thought that that was really interesting. I like when I like when fictional films do that, you know, with the unreliable narrator and like. A lot of the ones that are based off of true stories or, you know, where they take liberties are, you know, I don't find them in as interesting as something like I know use of discussed American animals uh, on the podcast, which, you know, like the way it's told with the actual people. And then it's like, I don't know whether he actually went to Amsterdam, but that's what he told me. And I presume that's what had happened. He could have just made that all up. But, you know, it do you know, it doesn't make sense if he didn't go. So we're going to go with that. Or um, Robert Redford's supposed last film, Dill Man and the Gun, isn't, or that's what it's called. You know, where it's like, this story is mostly true. Where it, it sort of precludes itself from being something which takes liberty with its source materials. Like, Hacksaw Ridge is a good film, but it takes a lot of liberties with the actual life of Desmond Doss, at least in the early parts. Because, you know, like, not everyone is documenting their lives because we don't know that they're going to grow up to be a famous person. There's a lot of expectation then on people where it's like, oh, you must have had some spectacular childhood. You know, you were like a prodigy or a precocious young genius. Like, that's why a lot of people, conspiracy theorists, don't accept the like, glovemaker's son 
um, from Stratford-upon-Avon could have written uh, all of Shakespeare's plays because he's a poor working class person. I've never really seen it done in documentaries. The closest thing I've seen is there was a documentary which came out recently called Finding Jack Charlton, which was about um, the coach of the Irish soccer team. As I've said before, I have no interest in sports, but I sat down and watched this with my landlord one evening, and it's so like moving because he meant so much to like he wasn't Irish, but he became like this beloved Irish figure, and then as he got older, he had uh, like he he ended up having dementia, and so like the cut between him and like uh, archival footage of football matches, but like for some of the stuff where it's like oh this is the moment where he accepted the job working. As it, they have actors cast, but they only ever show like their hands and stuff. So I've never, like, I've never seen a film or a documentary where they're like, we fully recast these people to do what the narrator is saying. So it's interesting. I feel like I've rambled on uh, a while, but I think that's very interesting. No, I, I mean, I think it's interesting too, especially because there'll be scenes where you hear Lazenby's voice, not the dialogue. So you'll see like the actor say something, but it's you hear Lazenby saying it. So like, I, I'm trying to think of a good example of this, but like he'll say, and then I went and I said, blah, blah, blah. And then like this person, like you'll hear, you'll see the actor like mouthing the words, but it's like completely dubbed over by Lazenby, which I just think it's such a fascinating film technique. Uh, but Sam, according to Lazenby, we, we all know that Lazenby made the hugest mistake of any James Bond, right? And that's why he never was James Bond again. According to him, why did he make the big mistake? So this is the really interesting thing. And it's really difficult to spoil a documentary. But if I can, I will. So the the big mistake, and it is referred to as the mistake, is popularly known his agent told him that, you know, Clint Eastwood made half a million dollars a picture. He could make two of those a year. He didn't need Bond. That happened. But it is downplayed in the documentary. Instead, it's it sounds like everything that happened in his lifetime prepared him to say no to Bond. And basically the answer is the Broccolis are terrible people who should never be in charge of any franchise that anybody ever likes. You know, this could become a mini rank that list of the top five Broccoli errors with James Bond. It could be, you know, making Connery mad, not getting Lazenby under contract rehiring Connery, hiring Roger Moore, firing Timothy Dalton. And those are just the five things. We haven't even talked about the ice hotel from Die Another Day. You know, it's just they're terrible. They're terrible people, and I hate that they're still in charge of this franchise. But anyway, that's why. He didn't want... He didn't... (laughs) No. (laughs) No. He has such feelings about the Broccoli's. I do not like dislike them. And that's just amateur status. Like, I haven't read enough to be a professional broccoli hater. But what are the bets that someone will come along and be like, uh, actually, I was hating the broccolis before it was cool. You know, like, they're they're a hipster broccoli that's hater. Connery. That's Sean yeah. Connery. He's dead now. Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> but the whole point is, like, he walked away and he acknowledges it as a mistake. But he says he walked away not because his agent convinced him to walk away, which did happen, but because he didn't want to sign away his life to the Broccolis. He didn't want to be banned from growing his hair out or having a beard or being told where he could go and who he could talk to. He just didn't want to do that. And so he said no. 
the great thing about this this film is that you have to see his life play out in a very particular way to understand why and to agree with that decision because that's the point of the film to no longer see this man as the doofus who turned down bond but as the very wise person who understood what he wanted from life and turned down bond and got what he wanted out of life I found it fascinating that he described James Bond as a fantasy. He says James Bond is a male fantasy and you can't live there all the time. And they wanted him to live there all the time. And I just, I found that really interesting about this film. I think it's an important piece of media um, in that regards to come out now and for people to consider because, well, first of all, you have the whole method acting thing where it's like method acting. I think it was Martin Freeman described it as like the most selfish like prick thing you can do you have your people who are like daniel day lewis where they do things like you know they'll only respond to mr lincoln on set and whatever and then you have the other end of that uh which is jared leto on the set of suicide squad uh terrorizing and abusing his co-stars which is not excusable in any way even if you're getting in the mind of a character and especially with joker there's this expectation that you need to method act, you know, because Heath Ledger did it, Jared Leto tried to do it, Joaquin Phoenix lost an insane amount of uh, weight to portray Arthur Fleck pre-becoming the Joker. But I think it's more interesting, or at least important, in terms of, like, Marvel people, because they'll sign on, like, five, six films at a go, and they're, like, they're locked into this thing, they can't leave, unless you're, like, Terrence Howard in the first Iron Man film, or... Edward Norton and there's a lot of creative control which Marvel takes away from their directors you know like famously Edgar Wright was going to do Ant-Man and things like this and um, Scott Derrickson is no longer doing Doctor Strange 2 because he had creative differences with Marvel blah 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 Patty Jenkins was going to do um, a Marvel film up until like creative control things happen and like I can only imagine what it's like for the actors because they're playing superheroes which is another male fantasy which they're forced to inhabit, but also because there's toys and stuff, they have they have to sign away the rights to their own image, and they have really no say in how toys are produced or uh, cover f- sh- shots. You saw that with like Elizabeth Olsen and covers leading up to Wandavision, where she was like digitally edited to look a certain way. Yeah, I mean, and just thinking about like the recent thing with uh, Taika Waititi and Rita Ora and Tessa Thompson, where they were photographed participating in what appears to be a polyamorous encounter, and Marvel reportedly was very angry with all three of them because they weren't they weren't showing like the wholesome image that Disney. I'm sorry, Disney was very angry with them because they weren't showing like the wholesome image that Disney wants, you know, because they want everything to be kid-friendly and they want everything to be, you know, pretty conservative in a lot of ways. And so I found that 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 is really interesting that that kind of, those franchises really want to exert creative control, not just like what happens on set, but what happens in the actors' personal lives as well. Imagine that you're more upset that your film director is doing a polyamory than you are when he literally played hitler yeah where are your priorities man (laughs) (laughs) this has gotten like wildly away from george lazenby as bond but it's like you know studios need to just stop 
Yeah, I mean, we were talking about while we were watching this, just seeing some of the footage from like the behind the scenes of making On Her Majesty's Secret Service. That I mean, like production value was probably way more on that series than it had been on many films before that. And so I you could kind of see this as like the the genesis of, you know, large franchises like Star Wars and Marvel and, you know, the, these these things that just suck up so much of pop culture. Would you recommend the documentary to anyone? Or who would you recommend this to? I want to say I recommend it to everybody. But I mean, if you dislike Bond, I frankly think there's still something in this. I think if you dislike Bond, this will convince you why you dislike Bond. You know, you'll be like, you got out. Good job, you Australian person. <laughs> and there is a there is quite a bit about that, about how they tried to get the Australian out of him to do this role. Yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting. It was not what I expected, but I enjoyed what I got out of it. Yeah, that's it. All right. Tune in next week when Megan Spell is going to join us for a Fast and Furious adjacent episode. Question mark. Oh, I saw uh, FF on the notes and I was like, Final Fantasy? <laughs> Final Fantasy starring Vin Diesel. That's right. A final, a final, now you got me saying it. A Fast and Furious themed episode to get everybody ready for F9. The final and the fantasy. The final and the fantasy. Oh, oh, oh. oh gosh. Two final, two fantasy. <laughs> But also, by that logic, that means Final Fantasy as a series is the fifth entry in the series because you've got Fast Five. Final Five. Fantasy Seven. All the right. Fate of the... <laughs> the fate of the fantasy. All right. Where can you find us? Uh, where can people find you, James? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Spicy Nigel, where I do things like tweet about the Boss Baby sometimes. I tweet about the Beatles and my hatred of their um, cultural homogeny. Uh, you can find me on TikTok uh, under the same app where I haven't posted anything recently, but I'm there. I also have podcasts, as Tessa mentioned at the start of the episode. You can um, Archive Admirers, which is a discussion slash breakdown of the other podcast, <laughs> the Magnus Archives. That's on Twitter at uh, Admirers Archive. And then Hyperfixations, which is a podcast where I'm wearing the, sh I'm wearing the shirt. Listeners, you can't see it, but Tessa is wearing a shirt with the Hyperfixations logo on it. Because who guessed it on an episode? I did. I guessed it on the last episode of Hyperfixations, where I talked about the Discworld. Yeah, so you can find that on Twitter uh, at HyperfixationsP or on Instagram at HyperfixationsPod. I have to be careful not to go into the whole spiel of um, rate and review us because that's, that's ingrained in my head now. Yeah. <laughs> where can people find you, Sam? On Twitter at Sam underscore Morris nine. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Suela Tessa. Send your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at monkeybacklog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Our theme song, Hot Shot, by Scott Holmes can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.